Hello, and welcome to Making the Rounds, a podcast by the American Medical Association. Today's episode is part of our health IT series from the AMA Medical Student Section Committee on Health Information Technology. My name is Shivani Patnagar, and I'm a medical student at the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, and I'll be your host for today. Today, we are joined by Dr. Brian Clay, who is an internal medicine physician at UC San Diego. He is also the Chief Medical Information Officer uh, at UCSD. Hello, and welcome, Dr. Clay. Hi. Uh, glad to be on. Thank you, Shivani. To get us started, can you explain to our listeners a little bit about um, how you're involved within health IT? Certainly. So as you said, uh, I currently serve as the Chief Medical Information Officer at UC San Diego Health. Um, A note of clarification, we actually have three Chief Medical Information Officers here at UCSD. Uh, About five years ago, the size and scope of the organization became such that uh, one was not enough. Uh, I've been in my current role for about 10 years. Uh, But as a hospital medicine physician, I now largely focus on the inpatient space, uh, as well as some areas having to do with interoperability. And I also am the uh, chief medical information officer liaison to the other University of California health campuses. So I've been in the role 10 years, and it has been a roller coaster of technological advance over that time. Um, When I first started, um, the role of the CMIO was largely about implementation of the electronic health record, whether it's in the clinic, in the hospital, what have you, and then about getting people to adopt those workflows and making those workflows optimal and efficient. Uh, Then later on, it became about, uh, well, we're putting all the data into the electronic medical record. How can we use that data to learn? How do I get the data back out uh, to derive insights about our patients, to find out where we can deliver care better, uh, and so on. And what we're working on now in health IT is kind of the next phase, and that is how do we bring all this data to the patient? You know, how do we use our technology for better patient engagement? How do we make the patient experience better, both in the clinic and, and the general outpatient space, as well as in the hospital? Uh, and then, of course, over the last two years, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has influenced all of that work uh, in some interesting ways. What are some things that you found? So um, one of the things that is true for anybody who works in clinical informatics is that there's, uh, there's always opportunities to make things better. There's always new technologies you can evaluate. And your bandwidth to do that kind of work is never going to be enough to tackle everything. Uh, and so a big part of what we do is to make governance decisions about what's most important to do now and what we can do a little bit later on. Well, COVID crystallized that for all of us. It immediately became everyone's number one priority. Um, and you know, almost two years ago now, in March of 2020, uh, as we you know moved from normal operations to in the throes of a global pandemic within the space of about six weeks, um, we had to rapidly mobilize both our operational and our technological side at UCSD to do a number of things to address the needs of the pandemic. We couldn't all be in the same room anymore. So we had to stand up uh, an enormous telehealth infrastructure. We went from a baseline of doing approximately 10 or 20 video visits a week for outpatients to doing a thousand a day. Uh, And that ramp up took place over five calendar days. So we had some of the infrastructure and we had some of the playbook, but we'd never done it at scale. Uh, But we were able to ramp that up, 
educate everybody in rapid fashion. And we went from, you know, very little telehealth uh, to essentially, you know, 85, 90% telehealth in our ambulatory space in just a few weeks. Uh, we did it very successfully. Um, it was meant to meet the needs of the moment. Uh, but things went well, and we were able to continue caring for patients using uh, using that technology. Awesome. Five days is such a short span to accomplish something like that. Um, and do you anticipate that these changes will last moving forward, even once um, the pandemic slows down or if um, it isn't as big of an impact as it is anymore? I think we, we've done quite a few things in response to COVID that are going to have uh, a lasting effect and will persist even beyond the bounds of, of COVID-19. Telehealth is one, and even though we are still within the pandemic, uh, we do a lot more you know, in-person care than during those first weeks two years ago. But we have a residual footprint of telehealth um, that's still substantial. It's not 10 and 20 visits a week. It's about 20% of our ambulatory care is done via video visit. Uh, and that's something where we have found, depending on the specialty, uh, that there's more or less applicability of that technology. And having it available as a tool has been very good. And everyone is kind of finding the right balance between having patients come to get care in person uh, versus doing it uh, through a video visit. So that's one. Uh, one other thing that we were called upon to do uh, in the first few months of the pandemic, uh, as along the lines of what I mentioned before, is get data out of the system. People were hungry, starving for information. How many COVID patients do we have? What is the rate of our positive tests? How long are COVID patients staying in the hospital? All kinds of information that the organization needed to help manage resources and just be ready every day to deliver care to our patients. So we stood up a number of reports, dashboards, uh, other analytics, uh, uh, tools to get people at all levels of the organization the information they need. Um, we at UCSD use an application called Tableau as our business intelligence uh, application, basically the thing we do to create data visualizations. And we stood up something uh, called a COVID-19 daily readiness dashboard, which showed things like uh, our current status on personal protective equipment, you know, whether green, yellow, or red. Uh, how many cases we were doing in the OR, how many people got admitted yesterday with COVID, how many free ICU beds were available, how many COVID patients were on the ventilator, how many were on ECMO, uh, so that we had kind of a daily snapshot of where we were and the trends from recent days. That is something that a lot of uh, organizational leadership had access to, but we actually created a PDF of it and emailed it to everybody in the health system. So it ended up going out to about 10,000 people every day. And to illustrate how hungry people were for information, we still get email responses now a year and a half later asking about tweaks, adjustments, other things people would like to see. People tell us that they are avid consumers of this information and just being able to get the data out of the system and deliver it to the people helping care for our patients has been incredibly important. All of that is to say that is another thing that's going to persist. So we have used COVID-19 as a springboard to really build out an incredibly robust data visualization platform. And that is something now everybody wants more of. Everybody wants to see their performance in their clinic, in their academic division, 
or even at a personal level. And so we have used uh, Tableau and other tools to continue to build out these kind of data structures so that people can have that information. Are there any challenges that come up when you're uh, trying to accomplish something like this? Um, for example, in prior interviews, we've talked to people who um, are concerned about perhaps like data privacy issues when it comes to patients' protected health information and things like that, um, that people now have access to through all this data collection and EMRs and things. Um, what has your experience with that been? So there's certainly a risk that comes with the concept of big data. And now that most healthcare organizations you know, of any size have had electronic medical records in place for quite some time, everyone has aggregated these really large databases of patient information. And that's a good thing because we can use those for research, for quality improvement, uh, and to get insights on our patient care. But it comes with risk if you try and extract data out of there. It's incumbent upon all of us to treat that data uh, with care and to make sure we put the appropriate safeguards around it. Um, this hasn't necessarily been a challenge, but it's something that we have had to be, be sure that we mindfully address. Um, and so we have uh, had a number of efforts at UCSD over the last few years, even predating COVID-19, to stand up infrastructure and processes around safeguarding patient data. We've done a lot of work in the cybersecurity space in the last couple of years um, to kind of harden our systems against uh, external intrusion or database attacks or things like that. Uh, we've uh, embarked upon a robust educational effort uh, to all of our workforce about the importance of keeping your username and password uh, secure and, and not uh, giving in to you know, email phishing attacks and things like that, because that's how people tend to get into your systems from the outside, but also put governance structures around um, requests from our researchers, our uh, uh, operations folks, and our folks that work in quality improvement who want to access these big data sets to make sure that we deliver it in a way that minimizes the risk of that data going far afield. Uh, and we kind of keep it within the bounds of the uh, technical infrastructure, but still in such a way that people can use it uh, to do whatever project they're working on. So that's been something we've had to do. And again, not so much of a challenge, but just an obligation, I would say, uh, to help minimize the risk of a patient uh, data privacy breach. All that is happening in the setting of uh, a requirement that we all comply with uh, related to a law called the 21st Century Cures Act. Uh, which was passed by Congress in 2016 and generated a regulatory rule from the Office of the National Coordinator in April of 2020, which the timing was coincidental, but uh, happened at the start of the pandemic. And this essentially said patients have a right to all of their healthcare information in an electronic format. Now, there were more details than that, of course, but it led healthcare organizations to move to uh, make test results and clinical notes available to patients essentially in real time uh, within the patient portals and other uh, methods that patient had, had to access their medical data. Uh, and that's been a challenge, not because of the technical approach to getting it done, but because that's an enormous culture change, right? And understandably so. Uh, back when we used paper records, you know, the only way a patient could access their medical data was to actually make a trip to medical records and submit a request for a copy of their medical record. 
And then in the EHR uh, uh, data or EHR uh, uh, era, I should say, uh, patients got uh, patient portals where they could access certain subsets of their data from the electronic medical record. But it was just that. It was a limited subset. And all of a sudden, patients you know, are going to get uh, access to their information uh, much more broadly and in real time, including things like clinical notes where you know, providers may describe something in a way a patient doesn't like or a CT scan result that shows an unexpected tumor uh, that neither the ordering physician nor the patient expected, and the patient is seeing that in real time and then having to deal with it. Uh, I am very much an advocate of data transparency, and patients, I think, should have all this information, but we are, we are all learning how to support our clinicians and our patients in what it means for patients to be able to see the data immediately. That's something we've never done. Um, we've all made the conversion relatively quickly in the last year and a half. And I think we're still learning how to manage that change with everybody involved. That's definitely been a challenge. And changes like this tend to have very positive connotations and um, seem to be uh, a, a step forward within the medical sphere. Um, but then there are issues such as um, digital issues with digital literacy or perhaps um, access to technology that can allow patients to see their um, health information in real time like you're talking about. What are some solutions that um, you think might help bridge that gap moving forward? So the digital literacy uh, issue is a big one. And historically, uh, I would say most healthcare organizations, including our own, have been mindful about content that we create in the arena of patient instructions to try and be written at an appropriate grade level, uh, not too complex, not too much jargon, because that was what was patient facing, right? But over the last year and a half, most things have become patient facing, including clinical notes that we all write as doctors, which we tend to write with other doctors in mind as the consumers of that data and not so much the patients. Uh, and so much of, of what uh, people have seen as we've gone to uh, what is called open notes, uh, where patients can see all their clinical notes, is that a lot of questions come up about verbiage or jargon, or what do you exactly mean by that? Um, now, I am hearing plenty of anecdotes from our physicians that patients are uh, contacting their physician, not urgently, but just, hey, I saw this in my note and this really helped me uh, remember what I was supposed to do after I saw you last before I see you again in three months. Or occasionally we are getting patients call back and say, oh, you said this was in my left elbow. It's actually my right elbow. And that's great. You know, a patient can call up and we can quickly correct the record. That's important. Um, but back to the digital literacy issue, uh, that is something where I think the answer is still unknown. Uh, what I think is going to happen is that the next phase of the Open Notes project is really collaborative authorship of the clinical documentation. Here's what I mean by that. You know, historically it was the physician who wrote the note. Today, in 2022, notes are often authored by multiple members of a clinical team. So perhaps the uh, patient comes into the clinic, uh, the medical assistant or the LVN in the clinic uh, takes a brief history, confirms the medication list, gets the chief complaint, 
Uh, and that information is recorded in the medical record and can be imported into the note for the day. And then the physician comes and interviews the patient, does a physical exam, uh, creates an assessment and plan, and then documents the rest of that. Many of our notes today are sourced from multiple areas, but they're not yet sourced from the patient. And there's some interesting work being done in a number of organizations uh, where what people are doing now is sending prompts or questionnaires to patients in advance of the clinic visit, asking them about, say, their top concern or their top couple of concerns and asking for some details and using that as the starting point for the history of present illness in the clinical note. So in essence, the patient is actually authoring part of the note. Some organizations are exploring workflows where the note is actually authored together, at least in part, during the clinic visit, where you might imagine both the doctor and the patient are both looking at the same computer screen and confirming that they agree on the information. You know, this is, I think, one of the ways that we can address the fact that physicians are always going to use language that is kind of above and beyond, you know, what the median patient may understand. There's a lot of complex terminology, and some of it needs to be in the note because the patient isn't the only consumer of the note. It's also a medical document and so on. But people are starting to realize that the patient is also a consumer of the note and to write with that in mind. And so I think we will see evolution of style, probably over a five to 10 year range about how people write their notes. Uh, and even for things like uh, how radiologists dictate their uh, reports for things like CT scans and MRIs um, and other imaging studies, knowing now that the patients are gonna have access to that uh, and are gonna be inquiring about the terminology that they see. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. That'd be a really interesting shift in the uh, patient-physician relationship moving forward. That'd be exciting to see. Um, so just to pivot a little bit, um, UCSD is one of the leaders in health IT research. Um, how has your experience been, or what has it been like to be one of the leaders in a group like this? Um, it, it's been a, a great experience, and I have to give credit to our, uh, uh, our chief information officer for the last five years, Dr. Chris Longhurst, who... Uh, uh, came to us from Stanford Children's, where he had the CMIO role there. And he was a big proponent of uh, making sure that uh, in addition to doing good work in applied clinical informatics, that you generate scholarship from it. Uh, not everything needs to be a grant-funded project or a randomized controlled trial. A lot of what we do in clinical informatics is implementation science. And it is very worthwhile writing up and publishing how you accomplish something, uh, the pros and cons, the challenges and the wins, uh, because you can teach other organizations who are looking to do a similar thing how you went about it and how successful that was. 
Um, this can be applicable to even relatively small scale projects that uh, you implement over, say, a two to three month uh, time frame. There are still some lessons to be learned and some measurements to be made that can then generate some scholarship and some publications. And this is helpful uh, not only for the organization, but for the physicians and the faculty members who participate in that work because it helps them in terms of uh, advancement and promotion, round out their CV and things like that. It's also a great opportunity for all the learners around here, residents, fellows, medical students uh, across multiple disciplines. And we've had quite a few residents and fellows partner with us on projects and get publication opportunities uh, based on the scholarship that's derived from that. And for any of our listeners who are interested in learning more about what it's like to be a CMIO, um, what are some training or qualifications that are required to be in this position? So that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, when I started 10 years ago, uh, the field was very new. And the CMIO who inhabited the position before me had only held that title for about a year. Uh, and, you know, as as far back as say 15 years ago, you know, to get into clinical informatics, you just had to be willing. You know, EHRs were new, they needed physicians to help lead projects, people that had interest in the space, uh, you know, could basically just volunteer and step into a role. The field has certainly matured since then. There is now an ACGME accredited clinical informatics fellowship. Uh, that is a two-year fellowship. We run one here at UCSD. Uh, and it's a fellowship that can take a, a resident from any specialty after they finish, and then they can do two years uh, in applied clinical informatics, uh, and there is a board exam and a board certification for that. What we're seeing now is that um, people are availing themselves either of a clinical informatics fellowship or uh, they are doing other types of training that really are essential for what we do in clinical informatics aside from the technology. And what I mean by that are things like uh, lean training, you know, green belt, black belt type uh, uh, certifications, um, process improvement and quality improvement training. A big part of what we do uh, is not the technology itself, but how you get it done and how you get a project implemented. Uh, the, I didn't go through a, a formal fellowship for clinical informatics because they're and there is still something called a practice pathway to be able to sit for the boards. If you've worked in clinical informatics for more than a few years at more than 30% time, uh, then you're eligible to sit for the boards. And I became board certified back in 2016. But recognizing uh, early on that I had an interest in this, I took something called the uh, ANIA, the American Medical Informatics Association, the ANIA 10 by 10 course. Uh, which is an online course uh, sponsored by multiple organizations. Uh, I took one that was sponsored by uh, Oregon Health Sciences University, OHSU, way back in the day. And it's all online and it spans 10 weeks and it covers kind of the basics of clinical informatics. And that was a great kind of starting point. And for anybody who's interested in this space, I highly re uh, recommend uh, checking out a 10 by 10 course it's relatively uh, light lift, it doesn't take much time, but it's a great introduction to the topic and it will definitely tell you whether you wanna learn more. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and reflecting back 10 years ago when you first got started, what is something that drew you to the field? 
So, um, you know, I'm a San Diego native. I was an undergraduate and a medical student here at UCSD. Um, but after spending all that time in San Diego, you want to see some other neck of the woods. So I, I did internal medicine residency elsewhere. And uh, I was in uh, at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. And Vanderbilt was one of the uh, uh, organizations that was really at the forefront of bioinformatics. They had a division of bioinformatics, a homegrown electronic medical record system. And when I started there as a resident in 2000, they were already doing computerized provider order entry, CPOE. And over my three-year residency there, I watched them evolve their technology and their electronic medical record in areas like clinical decision supports and order sets. And really, uh, I was able to see how you could use the technology to guide people to make the right decision. And I found that fascinating. So when I was done with residency in 2003 and I came back to San Diego and joined UCSD's faculty in hospital medicine, we were just starting our journey. Uh, to implement an enterprise electronic medical record. And I said, I want to get in on that because um, I think there's there's incredible opportunities as we move off of paper notes and paper orders to you know make processes highly reliable, to implement standard workflows, to give ordering physicians the information they need at the point of care to make good decisions. And that ended up being correct. There's a ton of opportunities to do that with the right software and technology in place. Um, and there's still uh, a lot of work to do. It's, it's very similar to internal medicine in that regard. One of the reasons I became an internist is because you can never master the field. It's so big, right? There's always something else to learn and, and something else interesting to know about. I think that information technology is much the same way, that there's always a new area to kind of uh, dig into and see if it can help you improve the care of patients. And now looking forward for within the next 10, 15 years, um, as my generation of medical students start entering the workforce, what are some changes that we should anticipate within um, HIT? Oh, I'm being asked to prognosticate. Um, it's very easy to see kind of the continuation of the current state only more so. You know, we'll have electronic medical records, but they'll become more efficient and easier to use. And Maybe there, you know, there are mobile app versions of them today, and those will become more robust. Um, but I do wonder if, if a sea change is out there, maybe 10 years down the road. And I think a big part of what drives that is actually external to the IT space. And specifically, I mean how we all get reimbursed as physicians. Even now, um, a good chunk of how physicians get paid is dependent upon their clinical documentation for that patient for that visit and drives a lot of how we write notes and how much information we include um, and, and things uh, related to that. If we were to radically change the funding model for physicians and for hospitals, that might drive an enormous amount of change in how we set up systems for people to write orders and write notes. That's one area. But even if that doesn't come to pass, I think one of the things that I'd be willing to put a little bit of money on in the next 10 years is that technology that's already being evaluated and piloted today um, in terms of voice recognition software and ambient computing will become mature enough to essentially mimic the Alexa that's in your house. My apologies to everyone who's listening to this 
whose device just turned on. Um, but you might imagine that there's a, a computer entity <laughs> in the exam room and you're interviewing your patient and you're examining your patient and maybe you're talking out loud a little bit like you did during a structured clinical exam in medical school. And the computer is ingesting all of that information. It's parsing what goes in the note. It's parsing what goes into patient instructions. It's parsing what are orders and teeing all of that information up so that you, the physician, then wander over to the computer, review all that material, make sure it's accurate and sign it off. And the whole chunk of time that we spend doing clinical documentation and order entry could potentially be outsourced to technology. I think this is actually gonna happen. Um, I don't think it's gonna happen next year. I don't think it will happen in five years. I think that uh, it'll happen within the scope of my career and I have a ways to go. It will definitely be something I think that today's medical students will see during their career. Awesome, we'll look forward to that. Um, all right, as we wrap up, um, do you have any channels or uh, social media handles where people can connect with you and follow your work? Uh, certainly. So you can find me on Twitter at, at Brian Clay MD, B R I A N C L A Y M D. Awesome. Well, everyone, that's all for today. Thank you for listening and thank you for your time today, Dr. Clay. This has been Making the Rounds, a podcast by the American Medical Association. You can subscribe to Making the Rounds and other great AMA podcasts wherever you listen to yours, or you can visit ama-assn.org/podcasts. Thank you for listening. <laughs>